U.S. companies have a new tool for protecting their valuable trade secrets. Will it work on a global scale? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. In May, President Obama signed into law the Defend Trade Secrets Act of 2016. It provides a civil cause of action for companies that experience the theft of trade secrets, in addition to the federal criminal statutes that were already on the books. So, is this additional protection necessary, and what exactly does it do? And what, for that matter, is the definition of a trade secret? Today I'm speaking with Frank Cullen, Executive Director of U.S. Intellectual Property Policy for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. He explains what's in the law and what was missing from trade secret and intellectual property protections prior to its passage. We'll find out whether it gives global businesses valuable ammunition in their battle against thieves who can come in the form of rival companies, criminals out for profit, terrorists, and even governments. We'll also hear about findings from the Chamber's new study on international counterfeiting. So here is my conversation with Frank Cullen. Frank Cullen, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much for having me. Recent passage of a new law, the Defend Trade Secrets Act of 2016. Could you tell me about that law? What, what's, what's in it? Well, the law provides a new federal civil cause of action. And what that basically does is it gives businesses and individuals who are confronted with trade secret theft a new tool to fight that theft. It allows them to go to a federal court and try to get an injunction, temporary restraining order, if you will, against someone who's actually stolen their secret. And the reason this is important is that when you see the increasing rate of trade secret theft and the fact that very often this theft occurs with a concern about the timeliness of trying to catch the perpetrator. Having this new tool will give businesses another way to fight what's a very serious threat to American innovation and job creation. Well, it seems like it makes eminent sense. What avenues of relief did companies and protectors of of trade secrets have before this? Well, in the past, there has been a federal criminal penalty, and that's very effective when it can be employed. The problem is often the timeliness that I mentioned before in terms of trying to stop the perpetrator. As you can imagine, federal enforcement agencies often have many things on their plate, whether they're dealing with terrorism or other types of crime. Uh, They have to prioritize their resources and their personnel. So if a company comes to a law enforcement agency at the federal level with a complaint about the federal, the problem is that if you can't stop them in a fairly short window of time, the trade secret falls out of the control of both the person who stole it and the company, and it becomes public. Once a trade secret is becoming public, it no longer has value because it's, of course, no longer secret. And by the very nature of a trade secret being secret, that's what gives a company their secret sauce or their very special proprietary information that really gives them the advantage in the marketplace. 
So theoretically, that quick action could take the form of what, a preliminary injunction, even a temporary restraining order, something that would stop it before it was actually had to be litigated in a court of law? Precisely right. And very often what you'll see in the current situation is a criminal uh, injunction is not going to be attained quickly enough so that the companies can actually prevent the flight of the perpetrator. And if you go to a state court where there are existing state civil remedies, the state may issue a temporary restraining order within that state. But say the crime occurs in New Hampshire. Well, the person who stole the trade secret in New Hampshire goes across the border to Massachusetts, jumps on a plane at Logan International Airport, leaves the country, and of course they've escaped with the trade secret. And once they've crossed the border from New Hampshire to Massachusetts, the state temporary restraining order is not going to be enforced in Massachusetts. With a federal civil cause of action, a federal marshal can go anywhere in the United States to get that perpetrator, to actually stop them from fleeing with the trade secret. I guess I should ask, I assume that the law at some point within the uh, language of the law actually defines what a uh, trade secret is, does it not? And what's the breadth of definition of what constitutes a trade secret? Well, that's exactly right. So trade secrets were actually uh, defined as part of the Economic Espionage Act, which was passed in 1996. And basically, a trade secret has to be uh, protected by a company, and they have to take specific steps to protect that trade secret and prevent it from becoming public. If they have not taken such steps and don't meet the definition of the law, then it's really not considered to be a trade secret. And that's really the test you have to be able to show to a judge, is that this is proprietary guarded information that has been really protected from uh, being brought to public light. Unlike a patent or a copyright where you file information to actually gain the intellectual property protection. A trade secret is a secret that simply has value because it's been kept protected from uh, exposure to others outside of the company or outside of the individual uh, control of somebody who's come up with the particular trade secret. And it relates specifically, as you say, to the so-called secret sauce or the ingredients or what goes into making a physical product? That's exactly right. Absolutely right. A trade secret could be the recipe for Kentucky Fried Chicken or Coca-Cola, but it also could be a manufacturing process by a company like Corning, which has a very specific type of glass manufacturing process. It could be an algorithm for a company like Google. A trade secret can be anything of value that has been kept secret that really provides a very specific way of either doing business. It could even be something like a marketing plan or a customer list. Trade secrets are not defined by a specific category. They can fall into a myriad range of different types of assets within different companies, depending on what advantages that company in the marketplace and separates it from its competitors. Ah, now how interesting. You just mentioned that it could be a customer list. I was going to ask you that because that does not directly relate to the ingredient of a product. It is obviously proprietary information, but if I walk away from my, from my former employer and I take away my customer contact list, I am, in effect, under this law, stealing a trade secret, right? Exactly right. And part of the reason that the law was uh, changed to create this new federal civil cause of action is that 
when the laws were first uh, introduced, very often trade secrets was viewed as a more localized or regional type of a crime. You had a competitor down the street who wanted to get your recipe for the type of bread you're baking that everyone in town loves. Or maybe you have a customer list in that town, and, and that's really your advantage in the marketplace. So it was more localized. Now, with the global marketplace, with the new technologies, uh, with the emergence of the Internet, and with the ease of international travel, theft of trade secrets has become an international concern and increasingly an international crime, in many cases sponsored by country states and nation states and others that really want to use it as an economic strategy to try to compete with innovation economies such as ours. It seems crazy, though, that before this law, all you had to do was step over a state border. I mean, you would still be within the purview of the United States of America, yet step over a state border and then be outside the jurisdiction of something as, as, as important as the protection of your, of your trade secret. I'm wondering, how high a bar do you, have to, do you have to jump over in order to convince a court of law to issue the necessary injunction? I mean, you have to litigate right then and there in order to prove to them somehow. To, you have to reach some burden of proof that proves that it was a trade secret, number one, that they took it illegally, number two. So that seems like a little bit of a, of a high bar to cross. Well, there's no question. And the Act actually provides for a number of very specific categories that have to be uh, looked at in terms of whether or not a judge would determine that this type of theft really meets that bar. And so they can't just go in and say they've stolen our trade secret. You've got to do something about it. They've got to really show that there's a likelihood that uh, showing the information, the trade secret, is going to be uh, something that will be perhaps stolen by improper means that it would perhaps create immediate and irreparable harm or injury to the company, that the individual who has stolen the item actually has it in his possession, that he actually has the trade secret, and that there would be a concern that he might, in fact, be able to transfer that information very quickly, and that obviously the personal harm is going to outweigh the legitimate interests of the subject um, and third parties. So uh, there's a variety of different types of categories that the judge would have to look at before he would issue the injunction and before the federal marshal service could be employed for this. And I do want to point out that the federal criminal remedy still exists, but it's simply a question of providing companies with another effective tool because what we've seen too often is that, in many cases, this is uh, something that impacts small companies as well, is that companies simply are not able to get the attention to the trade secrets theft in a timely enough fashion to prevent it. Having this civil cause of action creates a new level of protection that really addresses the timeliness issue. And for companies that don't have existing relationships, smaller companies, you know, startups that don't have existing relationships with federal law enforcement, or maybe don't have big IP departments or the resources of expensive attorneys, they're the folks that really need to address this in as quick a fashion as possible, because it may be the sole asset that really is the future of that company. And when that's threatened, you really want to see quick action. And too often, uh, with the criminal penalty at the federal level, that action just does not occur. Is there anything about the new law that was a little bit of a disappointment? Is there something that you'd like to see in it that didn't make it in through the various legislative maneuverings that are, that are necessary in order to pass a law these days? 
Actually, what's very, very commendable about the way the sponsor of this bill engaged in uh, actually moving this legislation forward was they consulted with industry, they consulted with individuals, and they really strengthened the bill throughout the process. So there were concerns, for instance, from the tech community that seizure provisions might negatively impact uh, cloud computing companies or uh, companies that may have uh, large servers that would be uh, potentially seized by the authorities to investigate the trade secrets theft. And so the way that those provisions were improved and the concerns were addressed during the process have made this really model legislation that essentially in the no industry sector has opposed. It's supported by virtually every industry. Well, we think it's supported by all industry because we've not heard any opposition. Uh, the only folks who have really opposed it are some intellectual property professors who we believe have a different view of intellectual property and really uh, have a view that is contrary to what we think benefits American business and what the evidence shows has benefited our innovation economy. Nobody out there is arguing that this is the end of the era of open source, of information sharing, that this spells doom for creativity, all the types of arguments that you might think would come up in a case like this? Precisely right, which is why companies like Microsoft, IBM, Google, and others were all part of the industry coalition saying this is a protection that makes sense. The provisions that are inserted into this bill are reasonable. They protect our companies against unwarranted or excessive uh, types of seizure. And so from that standpoint, uh, we believe that the bill really strikes the appropriate balance and has effective protections for everybody from uh, companies to whistleblowers. Okay, great. So we've got a law that protects companies' intellectual property and trade secrets within the boundaries of the United States, but we are living in a global community. What about internationally? What kind of protections are out there, and what would you like to see, and what is plausible that we could see that would sort of mirror this effort on a global scale? Well, it's very interesting. Some countries already do have trade secrets protection, but right now many are looking at our legislation and looking at it as a way to perhaps bolster uh, their protections as well. So you are seeing increasing awareness of this at the international level. And I want to be very clear, you know, one of the great things about this bill is that a lot of the trade secret theft is happening in America, and it's not exclusive to America, but it's happening in America because we have such an innovative economy. And when you have other countries who are looking at trying to replicate the type of innovation economy we have, they recognize the value of intellectual property in terms of driving innovation. So they are are looking at improving or harmonizing their laws. There are countries that do have existing trade secret laws that allow for civil protections. Ironically, China uh, has a trade secret law. And so uh, from the standpoint of knowing that uh, some of this is work in progress and some of it is a question of harmonizing and some of it is simply getting other countries to understand uh, where they can help themselves by having a strong IP system uh, based on a rule of law in place, uh, that's an on ongoing effort that GIPC, the Global Intellectual Property Center, remains engaged with with our international partners. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce has long advocated for the importance of IP, and we continue to discuss that with uh, countries throughout the world, and we think it's something that uh, you'll be seeing more of in the years to come. Of course, you know the big basic fear, and we've heard stories about this. I'm not sure the degree to which it's actually happened, but we hear stories about you hire a contract manufacturer in Asia to make your laptop or your PC or something. They turn around and take it, and they, and they uh, basically steal the product and send out unmarked product out the back door at the same time they're making your product. So that is, I guess, 
an, an example of the stealing of a trade secret, is it not? Does that kind of fold into this issue as well? And do you think that's a concern that needs to be addressed? Well, I wish it was as simple as just trade secrets. Uh, the truth of the matter is uh, there are folks throughout the world that are trying to steal all of our stuff, and it's not just those items that have been protected by trade secrets law, but also those things that are protected by patents or copyrights or they uh, have trademarks. So uh, infringement against intellectual property products uh, is a crime that uh, has been going on for as long as there have been intellectual property protections in place. The truth of the matter is uh, if somebody's not trying to counterfeit your product, you probably don't just have a counterfeiting problem, you probably have a marketing problem as well, because just about anything that has value, somebody's going to try to copy and rip off. So we certainly recognize that there are countries uh, where this is a particular problem. We understand that recent data has shown that a lot of the counterfeiting is coming out of China, and that we are certainly uh, seeing jobs lost in America as a result of the production and sale of counterfeit goods. But it's not exclusive to China. There are other countries that are engaged in as well. And some of this is not so much about simply having the right rules in place. It's also about making sure that enforcement occurs. And so you'll see uh, even in some of our trade agreements, there are very strong provisions for intellectual property protection. But if countries don't enforce those provisions and they turn a blind eye to the theft of intellectual property or the sale of counterfeit goods or the shipment of counterfeit goods, then obviously that's going to have an impact on American industry and American jobs. So our job is to try to work with different countries and uh, different partners to try to make sure people understand that in the long run, it benefits countries most to understand the importance of intellectual property in terms of driving its own domestic agenda or its own uh, domestic uh, economic agenda. So from our standpoint, we think this is something that uh, we'll continue to be focused on very uh, keenly in the coming years, and it's something that countries will benefit from if they follow America's lead. Well, I think you partially answered a question I wanted to ask you. We've been talking about domestic or national solutions, but you alluded to the fact that there is some degree of trade secret protection or IP protection contained. Is that the fact within the big multilateral trade agreements like the Trans-Pacific um, Partnership? Does that contain protections at a, high, at a high level in the way that we've been talking about here? That's exactly right. Uh, trade secrets were, in fact, uh, an issue that uh, the administration is uh, increasingly focused upon, and they are referenced uh, as part of uh, the TPP. And there are a number of provisions in the TPP that deal with intellectual property protections. But again, it's not just making sure the provisions are in the agreement. It's also making sure that enforcement after the agreements are signed are actually uh, adhered to and are actually effective. So from our standpoint, uh, while we certainly complement the negotiators for recognizing the importance of IP, we also want to make sure that the follow-up is equally robust. I understand you folks at the Chamber are about to release a study on counterfeiting, and I wondered if you could give us a preview of that. What are some of the findings? What's the scope of the study? What's the uh, significance of it? Well, absolutely. So we have actually just completed a study that really underscores the global impact or the global scope of counterfeiting. And it's a tremendously important problem uh, to deal with. And we have actually come out 
just uh, following a report that was released by the uh, OECD that follows up on a study they did about a decade ago. And the combined studies show that the global impact of counterfeiting could be as much as $461 billion or 2.5% of global trade. Um, Our study actually takes a very close look at a comparative level with a number of individual countries that were part of our global IP index. Each year, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the GIPC rank the IP systems in different countries throughout the world. We did 38 countries this year, and this counterfeiting study will provide an in-depth view within those countries of what the counterfeiting environment is in those companies. So we have created new modeling that's based on economies' propensity for counterfeiting. It includes factors such as broader levels of IP enforcement and estimated rates of corruption. We factor in a tremendous number of different components components in our study. And what we've seen is that, unfortunately, China continues to be a leader. In fact, China and Hong Kong account for 86% of all fakes. They actually originate in those markets. Now, we know there's been progress made in China, both legislatively and judicially, but we'll continue to work to try to improve that because it's really significantly a big problem. Uh, so we've you know, continued to advocate for much stronger IP protections. So our study really takes a look at these individual countries, uh, ranks each one, and that information is actually going to be released uh, this weekend by uh, the head of our enforcement team, Casey Brill, uh, who's been doing a lot of great work on this topic. And uh, we think it really helps to provide new important data to show in a very uh, rigorously vetted fashion uh, the scope of the problem. Well, great. I hope we can provide a link to that study in the show notes to this episode so that our listeners can hear more about this this very, very important issue. But in the meantime, uh, Frank Cullen, I want to thank you so much for spending time with me to talk about the new Defend Trade Secrets Act of 2016, the issue also of counterfeiting and what the U.S. Chamber and its partners are doing in order to address this vital issue. Thank you very much for being with us. Well, thank you very much. I certainly appreciate the time, and I'd just like to point out that the Chamber's long committed uh, to supporting appropriate IP policies because we believe that drives American innovation and protects American jobs, and uh, that's really the mission of the GIPC, and we appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. That was my conversation with Frank Cullen of the Global Intellectual Property Center of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, talking about a new law to protect companies from the theft of trade secrets. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.